Every historian writes in and is impacted by a precise historical moment. My moment, this book's moment, coincides with the televised and untelevised killings of unarmed human beings at the hands of law enforcement officials, and with the televised and untelevised life of the shooting star of hashtag Black Lives Matter during America's stormiest nights. I somehow managed to write this book between the heartbreaks of Trayvon Martin and Rakia Boyd and Michael Brown and Freddie Gray and the Charleston Nine and Sandra Bland. Heartbreaks that are a product of America's history of racist ideas, as much as this history book of racist ideas is a product of these heartbreaks. Young black males were 21 times more likely to be killed by police than their white counterparts between 2010 and 2012, according to federal statistics. The underrecorded, underanalyzed racial disparities between female victims of lethal police force may be even greater. Federal data show that the median wealth of white households is a staggering 13 times the median wealth of black households, and black people are five times more likely to be incarcerated than whites. But these statistics should come as no surprise. Most Americans are probably aware of these racial disparities in police killings, in wealth, in prisons, in nearly every sector of U.S. society. By racial disparities, I mean how racial groups are not statistically represented according to their populations. If black people make up 13.2% of the U.S. population, then black people should make up somewhere close to 13% of the Americans killed by the police, somewhere close to 13% of the Americans sitting in prisons, somewhere close to owning 13% of U.S. wealth. But today, the United States remains nowhere close to racial parity. African Americans own 2.7% of the nation's wealth and make up 40% of the incarcerated population. These are racial disparities, and racial disparities are older than the life of the United States. In 2016, the United States is celebrating its 240th birthday. But even before Thomas Jefferson and the other founders declared independence, Americans were engaging in a polarizing debate over racial disparities, over why they exist and persist, and over why white Americans as a group were prospering more than black Americans as a group. Historically, there have been three sides to this heated argument. A group we can call segregationists has blamed black people themselves for the racial disparities. A group we can call anti-racists has pointed to racial discrimination. A group we can call assimilationists has tried to argue for both, saying that black people and racial discrimination were to blame for racial disparities. During the ongoing debate over police killings, these three sides to the argument have been on full display. Segregationists have been blaming the recklessly criminal behavior of the black people who were killed by police officers. Michael Brown was a monstrous, threatening thief. Therefore, Darren Wilson had reason to fear him and to kill him. Anti-racists have been blaming the recklessly racist behavior of the police. The life of this dark-skinned 18-year-old did not matter to Darren Wilson. Assimilationists have tried to have it both ways. Both Wilson and Brown acted like irresponsible criminals. Listening to this three-way argument in recent years has been like listening to the three distinct arguments you will hear throughout Stamped from the Beginning. For nearly six centuries, anti-racist ideas have been pitted against two kinds of racist ideas, segregationist and assimilationist. The history of racist ideas that follows is the history of these three distinct voices, segregationists, 
assimilationists, and anti-racists, and how they each have rationalized racial disparities, arguing why whites have remained on the living and winning end, while blacks remained on the losing and dying end.